the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome back. As we head into hour three, uh, you requested me to do this again, so I'll do it again. Nan, uh, my monologue from the first hour. Nancy Pelosi writes this morning, quote, We have an opportunity to keep the Senate and build a majority so strong that Republicans will regret ever coming after our rights and barging back to power. Barge, which means to force. As if an election where people shows against exorbitant unnecessary costs to live against humiliating and deadly military defeats against the racialization and sexualization of our children against dependence for our energy needs on dictators would not be choosing a new leadership rationally and peacefully but those choices would be violent forcing of a return to power they will regret ever coming after our rights. Does this sound menacing, commendatory, or threatening to you at all? Just after wrapping up the final January 6th hearing, where the issue was whether the atmosphere and climate of menacing, commendatory, and threatening language was the issue, and thus cause of violence coming from the equivalent of one Airbus 380 airliner. You know, the thing the Democrats have perpetrated and portrayed over and over again for nearly two years, as if it was the first time someone denied the good faith and operations of an election here. Query, why do we have election observers in every election? Query, why do we have election laws? Query, why do we have election attorneys? Query, why does every recorder and secretary of state office in the country have a website and mandate to ensure free and fair and legal elections? Because, to borrow from Reinhold Niebuhr, man's inclination towards injustice makes democracy necessary. Because, as John Stuart Mill put it, any system, moral or otherwise, will work ill if you assume universal idiocy conjoined to it, or if you assume ill will or political entitlement, or opinion principle regime hierarchy conjoined to it. In other words, precisely because we know elections can be tampered with, it's called election tampering and election fraud, we have those phrases for a reason. We know it has happened, and we know it can happen. Campaign finance reform is but one perennial effort to stop perennial campaign fraud and abuse. Oh, and one other reason, because Democrats taught the world that when they don't win, sometimes they will blame the accuracy or fairness of an election. Hell, Joe Biden fouled history as well as his own nest, yelling at the American people from Georgia that if they didn't pass his version of election reform, Republicans would be inheriting the moral and historical legacy of Jefferson Davis, Bull Connor and George Wallace. And that was Obviously, after January 6th, 2020, admitting, sotto voce, that at least to him and his party, elections in America were or are inherently in need of dramatic reform because they are abusable and abused. 
Hell, the Democratic candidate for governor in Georgia, Stacey Abrams, who is the former Democratic candidate for governor, has said so many times her election was stolen from her, denying the results and claiming she was the appropriately elected governor. There are musically doctored YouTube videos and memes of her saying it. Hell, what of this headline from 2017? 2017, NPR, National Public Radio, quote, Clinton won't rule out questioning 2016 election. Close quote. Or this headline from that same year, 2017, after Donald Trump was elected from CNN, quote, Clinton opens door to questioning the legitimacy of the 2017 election. Close quote. What of this headline from ABC News in 2000, quote, Al Gore to contest election results? Anyone remember the phrase big lie? I guess it only applies to one party. Hell, how about this story from the San Francisco Chronicle in 2004? Let me just read the opening two paragraphs. Quote, California Senator Barbara Boxer expressing regret for failing to act after the contested 2000 presidential election delayed George Bush's formal reelection for almost four hours Thursday in a nearly unprecedented protest of Election Day irregularities. Boxer and fellow Democrat Representative Stephanie Tubbs-Jones of Cleveland, Cleveland, relying on widespread reports of voting problems on November 2nd, stopped the count of electoral college votes with that formal objection to the Ohio results, close quote. Stopped the count for four hours. Four hours. The transfer of power was delayed by claims of fraud. Of course, you know, part of that sentence isn't true. The day Barbara Boxer did that was not a transfer of power day any more than January 6th was a transfer of power day. It was a count the vote day. Just because the Democrats like to claim January 6th stopped the peaceful transfer of power, it doesn't mean it was true. They know January 6th, as Barbara Boxer's effort 16 years earlier, was a vote counting day, not a transfer of power day. Four hours, though. Wow. That'd be an hour less than what transpired on January 6th. But no big lie there. And, of course, the image I will never forget is Hillary Clinton in August of 2020, just a couple years ago, telling her former chief of staff, Jennifer Palmieri, on Zoom that Joe Biden, quote, should not concede under any circumstances because I think this is going to drag out. As Palmieri, remember, as an interviewer, thrust her fist in the air. Like she were Malcolm X or something, gesticulating on or mimicking the black power symbolism, celebrating the idea that Hillary Clinton is saying, don't accept the results of the election. Anyway, I gave you Nancy Pelosi's peaceful language three days after the January 6th committee held its final hearing, a hearing about how violent rhetoric led to, well, violence. The problem this hearing had was that while there was violence, there was no violent language, no inciting language from the president. It's hard, after all, to convert march peacefully and patriotically into a call to violent arms or insurrection. By the way, this would be the hearing where they issued Donald Trump a summons, but not Nancy Pelosi, though she was in charge of capital security and for some mysterious reason was all wired and mic'd up by HBO for that day for a documentary that... No doubt, I say sarcastically, must have been pre-planned for events that would take place some other day. You know, the wired in microphone Nancy Pelosi who laughed about going to jail for punching Donald Trump in the face. That Nancy Pelosi that day.
that documentary, that wiring. Though I do have to tell you that January 6th obsession has had some effect. Thought experiment. Thought experiment. Talk about the effect. You can turn it into an actual experiment. Ask anyone you know who doesn't listen to talk radio how many cops or others were killed on January 6th. I can tell you I know the results of that experiment. You will get the wrong answer. The only person who died in that violence on that day, as you know, was one of the rioters. In fact, I take it as an evidentiary statement against interest that the media and Democrats had to perpetuate a falsehood about Capitol Police being killed that day to make January 6th look worse than it was. In fact, while speaking of evidence and witnesses, do you find it not a little interesting the January 6th committee did not call as a witness the officer who shot that female, that female unarmed rioter in the back? We used to be against police shootings of the unarmed, didn't we? But ask someone who doesn't listen to talk radio how many people were killed on January 6th. You'll get the wrong answer. There's an op-ed in today's Arizona Republic by one Ingrid Jacques. She's a journalist for the USA Today. It's a love letter to Liz Cheney about how she's a real Republican, like Mitt Romney and George Bush, as Jock tells us, as opposed to Donald Trump and his supporters who, quote, push conspiracies and an agenda that doesn't mesh with mainstream conservatism, close quote. That's what she writes. Doesn't mesh with mainstream conservatism. Now, I didn't know of Ingrid Jacques, so I looked up the biography of this expert on what conservatives are and should believe. As a journalist, she moderated a GOP debate in Michigan and others, I gather. Does a journalist who write Sop-eds on who is and who isn't a legitimate conservative sound like someone who should be moderating a televised Republican primary debate. And a question about this mainstream conservatism. Is it mainstream or out of the mainstream to oppose teaching five-year-olds about their sexual organs in school and how, if they don't like them, they can work on changing them? Is it mainstream or out of the mainstream to oppose the concealment of those two teacher-student discussions from parents? Is it mainstream or out of the mainstream to teach five-year-olds they should be ashamed of their race if they are white? Is it mainstream or out of the mainstream to support abortion up until and even after delivery? Is it mainstream or out of the mainstream to support non-college graduates bailing out college graduates for their student loans? Is it mainstream or out of the mainstream to stop energy jobs and production here so we can ask Venezuela and Saudi Arabia to fulfill our energy needs? Is it mainstream or out of the mainstream to ignore the leading cause of death of young adults, fentanyl, which we can volitionally do something about but don't? Is it mainstream or out of the mainstream to ignore that cause of death, which is at least 100% greater than the threat to life in the same age category as COVID, while we mandate and make exquisite and nonstop mandates and sirens and alarms over COVID, the lesser threat to that same age group? Is it mainstream or out of the mainstream to question rushed and herd mentality, weaponization and politicalization of science? Is it mainstream or out of the mainstream to point out the logical and potential iotrogenic and paradoxical effects of that reliance on that science only to then be censured and censored? Is it mainstream or out of the mainstream to oppose condemning fellow citizens objecting to sexualized and racialized curricula as domestic terrorists and the sicking of federal and local law enforcement on those parents' citizens? 
Is it mainstream or out of the mainstream to lie about our borders? Is it mainstream or out of the mainstream to oppose one party's irrigations of power to decide unto itself when and where to nullify federal law when they disagree with it? Is it mainstream or out of the mainstream to support religious institutions' objections to the sexual fashions of the times that conflict with the teachings of the Bible? That is the very reason those religious institutions exist. Is it mainstream or out of the mainstream to oppose the arbitrary censorship of political legitimate speech? Is it mainstream or out of the mainstream to think maybe we could take you more seriously if you'd objected to your new heroes of conservatism being lambasted as wanting to put black people in chains when they were running for president by the man who is currently the president and whom you do not consider outside the mainstream? I guess I'd sum it up this way. To journalists whose understanding of politics and consistency and single standards and objectivity is the equivalent of a horse's ability to climb a ladder, and to leaders of the Democratic Party who plumb the depths of their thesauruses to conjure up the most radical language for the purpose of explaining or propagandizing their opponent's radicalism, all in order to justify their opponent's defeat and their own moral and self-serving political superiority, please excuse us if we don't buy your snake oil, and please excuse us if we do think of it as snake oil. I'm Seth Leibson. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. If you're worried about stock market volatility and who isn't, what if I could invite you to check out an investment in a portfolio with a strong fixed rate of return and no correlation to the stock market? If you're looking for such a unique investment opportunity, I'd like you to check out my friends at Y-Refi. They're offering a great investment. It's all in a secure and collateralized portfolio with an up to 10.25% return for investors. And the investment can be a joint investment. It can be an individual investment. It can be in a trust. It can be in an in an IRA. Y-Refi is a due diligence approved firm. It's made up of great guys, really great guys, who do really well by doing good for others. And you can be a part of that too. Check them out at investyrefi.com. That's the word invest, the letter Y, R-E-F-Y.com. Or you can give them a call at 855-316-3087. That's 855-316-3087. Never a sales pitch. They just like talking about what it is that they do, and they'll let that speak for itself. Um, I mentioned earlier, I think, that uh, I had a great time uh, out uh, in the West Valley uh, this weekend uh, on Saturday, I guess it was, giving a talk. Uh, I was asked to give a talk. It was kind of interesting. I was asked to give a talk, political Republican club out there, and um, it was on uh, two things, Rules for Radicals, the Saul Alinsky book, and um, the outline that many of you might be familiar with. It's a, uh, available on, on social media. It's a video, YouTube or some such, of a former KGB agent, now passed away, Yuri Bezmenov, who described the various phases that Marxists do go through to affect change in non-Marxist societies. Uh, boiled down to four in the step of processes, it's demoralize, destabilize, crisis, then normalization. 
demoralize, re-educate a generation to think differently about its country. None of this happens overnight. It takes time, but you see the strategy. It takes about a generation to lose freedom that way. Demoralize, re-educate a generation. Then destabilize, which is to say change perceptions and foreign relations, change the economy, change the purposes of the military, do things that have never been contemplated before. Make the military, in our case, I don't know, um, much more about nation building perhaps than um, than destroying enemies, uh, make the military much more about social uh, policy within itself rather than, you know, standardized uh, modes of behavior that you expect people to abide by, like knowing the difference between a guy and a girl and not allowing the um, communion of either in the bathrooms, showers, and bunks, um, perhaps not requiring that they read Marx so much as we might require that they read, I don't know, Lincoln and Madison. Okay, so you have demoralized, destabilized, then you have crisis, and boy, does that ring home for me, the crisis industrial complex that we seem to be living in now. And, you know, one of the thoughts I, I shared with when I got to that phrase crisis had to do with the word I use. I, I prefer the word frenzy because I think the crisis leads us to frenzy. Frenzy is, uh, you think of the cognate word frenetic. It's a psychological disability. Think about mass psychological disability. Think about mass psychological confusion. Think about massive psychological harm to a society. Think about massive mental health deficits in a society you can cause it you can cause it that's why i like to use the use of the word frenzy and then once people get used to all of this once they get used to all of this normalization the new normal how many times have you heard that phrase if you hear that phrase the new normal and you instinctively recoil from it you just instinctively don't like it you think it's not a good thing. You're right. You're right. It's not a good thing because you are now being forced to get used to, to be numb to, to be inured to a reality that didn't used to exist and almost never for the better. Almost never for the better. I can't think of an example of the phrase new normal describing an improvement. Um, think about it with prices. Think about it gas prices, food prices, think about it with uh, schools and education, think about it with quality of teacher, think of it with quality of service in the service industry, think about it quality of uh, building, home building, any number of things. Think about it, the quality of just going out to eat like you used to. You know, it's kind of interesting when, um, when the restaurants reopened here, I think I went out to one on its very first day that we were allowed to go back to restaurants and I had a lot to say about it at the time. But think about that phrase, when we were allowed to go back to restaurants. We just went along with all this stuff, and we thought, yeah, we shrugged the shoulders. Okay, we're all in this together, I suppose. That's what we were told. We're all in this together. Are we all out of it together? Does it apply both ways, by the way, this notion we're all in COVID together? Joe Biden said COVID's over. Are we all out of it together? Not so clear with his policies, is it? Not so clear with the people who prefer dwelling in caves rather than living in freedom and light either, is it? 
All right, just a few thoughts. Uh, Mark Recording coming right up, speaking of immigration and new normal. He's going to talk to us about illegal immigration and crime. He is the executive director of the Center for Immigration Studies. He and I will be right back. Well, it's a uh, delight to welcome back to the show an older, I should say, longtime friend. He is Mark Krikorian. He is the executive director of the Center for Immigration Studies. CIS.org is his website. I don't know anyone who knows more about immigration issues than Mark. Fantastic organization. And his organization put out a, a report recently about the nexus between illegal immigration and crime. Mark, welcome back to the Airwaves of Phoenix. How are you, sir? Glad to be here. I'm doing very well. And I think you were right with the old friend part, so I am actually old. No, you are not, because if you are, I am. So let's just call <laughs> okay. it long time. Long That's time. Fine. Okay, buddy. All right. So illegal immigration, to at least a lot of us, Mark, it's a malum and say, a wrong in and of itself. And perhaps it's a wrong in and of itself uh, for a lot of reasons. But one of the reasons, just one of the reasons, is the ancillary effects it has with regard to crime. Uh, People often get in trouble when they try and make these connections. But what is the story of illegal immigration and the furtherance exacerbation of crime? The, The narrative that supporters of open immigration have latched onto is that illegal immigrants are less likely to be involved in crime than the native-born, or even than legal immigrants, necessarily. Uh, and the our point has always been, and we've done several studies on this, this most recent one I'll explain a little bit, but our point is that we really don't know what the answer is. There are, there are indications that in some areas it's clear that illegal immigrants are more involved in crime, but the evidence is not clear, and it doesn't lend itself to the narrative that the other side wants to put forth, which is basically that illegal immigrants are better than you are, and so shut up and take it. Right. And that's kind of, I mean, you know, to sort of put it crudely, that's what... I've heard it. I've heard it from, yeah. I've heard it from uh, erstwhile yeah. conservatives like Bill Crystal. I've heard it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And uh, so this report in particular was aimed at one of the main studies that people rely on, or at least, you know, they saw the headline for when they make this statement, you were, you know, we're talking about here that illegal immigrants are better than we are. Yeah. Uh, the Cato Institute, which is a libertarian anti-borders think tank in Washington, and there was also an academic study of the same data from Texas. The Texas okay. Department of Public Safety okay. is one of the few states that actually keeps good data on immigration status. And so uh, the Libertarians uh, released this report saying that, aha, look, here's what it says, and illegal immigrants in the data are less likely to be involved in crime. Well, we said, really? Okay, well, let's look at the actual data, because it's there for anybody to look at. And (laughs) they basically didn't know what they were looking at. And I don't mean the math was wrong, not to go into a lot of detail, but... Illegal immigrants sometimes are identified right away when they're arrested and booked as being illegal, if there was some kind of paperwork on them with DHS. But others aren't identified as being illegal immigrants until after they've been in prison for a while. Right. Well, if you're only using the statistics from 
the beginning of that process, you're missing all kinds of illegal immigrants, and you end up with an incorrect number. They mm. basically didn't understand the data that they were using. It was a story that was too good to check. Yeah. And, you know, that always leads you into problems. You know, this notion, because they, I think they kind of play tricks with us on this a little, Mark, or at least a rhetorical game. Well, you know, most illegal immigrants are not criminals. Yeah, okay. Most Americans sure, aren't. But we have high right. crime and rising crime. Um, you're right about states or even municipalities not keeping great records. I don't need to tell you you're right. You know you're right. I'm verifying in my own research. I, I have a hard time finding this stuff out. But yep. we do in Arizona put out a monthly report called Corrections at a Glance, which tells us who's incarcerated. And, mm-hmm. you know, you look at some of this stuff under that's just take murder. Right now, uh, well, it's the month of September. It's our latest one. Right now, month of September in Arizona, we have 357 illegal aliens incarcerated for murder. I, I don't care whether it's a majority or a minority. That's 357. That's a heck of a lot of murders. Child molestation, 260. Drug trafficking, 523. Sex offenses, not evidently child molestation, another 313. So, you know, people can say, well, it's not most of them. I get that. It's not most of anywhere. Um, Can we pick up on this when we come back? This was a short segment. I got to take a quick commercial break and pay the bills. I'm Seth Liebson. He's Mark Krikorian, Center for Immigration Studies. He and I will be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Mark Krikorian is our guest. He's the executive director of the Center for Immigration Studies, a fantastically important uh, think tank, and uh, he is a fantastically uh, important expert. Uh, Mark, I was just making the point right before the break that the Cato types and others will say all your condemnations of illegal immigration and trying to reduce it to reduce crime, most illegal immigrants aren't criminals. Right. Most of any criminal any any population isn't criminal it doesn't mean that there's a damn lot i was reading off some statistics in arizona right now we have 357 murderers who are illegal immigration immigrants in jail we have 260 child molesters we have 313 other sex offenders it's a damn lot right oh absolutely and um obviously each one of the crimes those people committed is or was avoidable right because the government refuse to enforce immigration laws. Now, even if you're very vigorous in enforcing immigration laws, and even if there were no sanctuary cities, there's still going to be some illegal immigrants, and sure. some of them are going to commit crime. Sure. So this isn't a question of, you know, uh, of sort of perfection, but it does show two things, I think. One is the obvious one, the message that, that you get from looking at the numbers, which is, you know, that's 357 people who might not have been murdered. Right. Uh, even if it was only 357 of them would have gotten through anyway, that's still people who crimes that would have been committed. Mm-hmm. But the other point is kind of more of an operational point, is that it really shows how using immigration law as one of the tools in the toolkit of law enforcement can enhance public safety. Because uh, local police, state police, the sheriffs, they're not going around asking people about their immigration status on the street. Uh, This is the way these um, uh, sanctuary city people often try to parody it or caricature it. The fact is, ICE doesn't want local cops 
walking around asking people for their green cards. What they want and what they, we as the public should demand is that when police arrest somebody for whatever the offense is in their state or locality, drug dealing, drunk driving, beating up their wives, whatever it is, that when the fingerprint check happens, which happens to everybody who's booked, they go to FBI and the fingerprints also go to Homeland Security. If they come up with a red flag and ICE says, please hold on to this person so we can, you know, uh, gather them up and throw them out of the country, that, that you know, that that be allowed, that they, their ICE is allowed to do it and the sanctuary cities cooperate with them in doing that. Um, the And so when you see the number of criminals, whatever that number is, who are illegal immigrants, those are people not only who shouldn't be here, but those are an indication of how better immigration enforcement can enhance public safety if only the federal government, which is basically trying to create a sanctuary country, and then the local sanctuary jurisdictions in a lot of places were not doing that and were instead committed to helping enforce immigration laws. Mark, I'm listening to this, and I'm thinking you and I have probably been in communicado, uh, have been talking about this, in communication about this issue and related issues, I don't know, probably two decades, close to 20 years. And I remember one of the very first times we ever talked, you said, you know, states and municipalities and law enforcement agencies don't just don't, don't, don't keep records, don't have a very good record-keeping system. On, on illegal immigrants, and it sounds like very little progress in 20 years on that has been made. It sounds like we're still not doing a very good job. A, is that true? And B, is it because of ability or because of will? I mean, could we? Oh, and we decide not to? And, yeah, go ahead. It's definitely a question of will. Okay. Um, there are, in fact, 11 other states other than Texas who do track the immigration status of people in their correctional system. So it's not, um, so on the one hand, I mean, most states don't do it, but some do. But the other thing, the thing that has actually improved, I guess, over the past 20, less than 20 years, really 10 years, is that there's been now a full integration of the fingerprint system where fingerprints go to the FBI. Each state has like a central clearinghouse and then they're all digitized. They go there and they're sent to the FBI. That's been now integrated with DHS as well. Okay. So we actually do know much, in other words, we actually have information that we didn't have before. Because in the old days, you know, if you're taking a fingerprint with ink and rolling it on a piece of paper like in the old days, well, ICE may never, or back then it would have been INS, they would never have known that this person was an illegal immigrant. Right. The local cops may have sussed it out somehow, but may not have. Now we know. We have better information now and that should lead to better law enforcement by removing threats to public safety if there's an immigration way to do it um, that uh, in many cases, you know, the evidence may not be strong enough. Prosecutors may not be committed to prosecuting whatever offense it was. But if the guy's an illegal immigrant, call up ICE and make sure that he's removed from the community, an immigrant community most of the time, and help make that community safer. Even just the analysis and knowing 
would have value. I mean, like we used Absolutely. CompStat in New York, right? Uh, right. Irrespective of broken windows and Giuliani and all that. I mean, I think he ushered that in. But, you know, just having the ability to know using the technology at our means would get us a long way. And the idea that we have this ability and don't don't deploy it or don't use it because it's politically inconvenient or politically distasteful seem, seem, seems to me um, political uh, public policy malfeasance. Yeah, absolutely. Because, you know, data and information can create its own right. political reality. Exactly. In other words, uh, this is the kind of thing that under the Trump administration, ICE did a better job of transparency. In other words, forget about whatever policies you may not like and, you know, the so-called Muslim ban, all that stuff. How about just transparency, where actually anyone who has a Internet connection can see whatever the latest information was, that itself creates political momentum, which is why this administration on immigration is extraordinarily non-transparent. They do not want you to know what a lot of these statistics are. Yeah, I, I just got, I'm getting reports a few times in the last week about cameras the administration has turned off along the border. I wonder if we, this was a great down payment. I wonder if I might circle back with you next week and we can pursue this a little further. I'd love to do so if you have the time. Sure, love to. Mark Krikorian, thank you, sir. You are a national treasure. Mark Krikorian has been our guest. He is the executive director at the Center for Immigration Studies, CIS.org. You want to learn about immigration, legal and illegal, Center for Immigration Studies is your go-to spot. I'm Seth. We'll be right back. Great start to the week. Great being with you this Monday. Thanks for spending some of your time with us. Thinking about what Mark Krikorian was saying, I'm returning to a quote you often hear me use of late. I think it's important. I think it's an important quote. That's why I keep sharing it. And <laughs> Of course, I have... I have uh, become fascinated by the notion that repetition truly is uh, <laughs> the essence of pedagogy. Uh, it's true in my own life. I need to hear things several times <laughs> before I learn it. But in any event, uh, the protection of the individual against the criminal is, William Buckley said, the first and highest function of government. The failure of government to provide protection is nothing less than the failure of government. Um, the government is failing us. On a whole range of issues, it's not about ability. It's not can we do this. It's about will, the refusal to do something about it. Now, there might be larger political interests behind that. I gather that there are. When it comes to the issue of illegal immigration, I myself can't tell why there is such an ED fix in the Democratic Party to do nothing about it, to ignore that it's happening, to tell us that we are racists for bringing it up. I don't, I don't care what country the thugs come from. I don't care if they're whiter than me or if they come from Lithuania, as I did. I really don't. Every country has borders, and it seems to me a sane country right now, a sane one, would care as much about its own as it would Ukraine's. It just seems to me that it's no accident when you look at who's in prison and why, and you look at the violent crime that we're dealing with and why. And it's not just the illegal alien. It's also the legal American. But a lot of it also has to do with other illegal appurtenances, 
from drugs and weapons, and we can do stuff about that too. The failure of us to do these things is the failure of our government. We have a people better than our government. Perhaps on November 8th we can start putting the good in place of the bad, the good people in place of those bad officials. That is my dream and that is my hope. Join me on it. Until tomorrow, God bless you all. I'm Seth Liebson and classes dismissed. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.